seats and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Uh, we're going to take a break from Acts for a couple weeks and uh, focus on um, Palm Sunday and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the next week a look at the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Um, plead your patience this morning. I uh, got one of those chills and coughing, fever, sort of flus or colds or something like that. And so um, if I start hacking away, I'll try to get away from my microphone, but it's kind of attached to my face. So I'll do my best. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. We'll read through verse 11. Follow along in your Bibles. As I read out loud, (coughs) now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. One of, the, um, one of the deep needs of society and of humanity is to have leadership, and it's to have a king. Even, even some of the most highly trained Marines in the world, that you read of accounts that if their commanding officer goes down, they become disjointed because they don't have a leader. We need a king. And in fact, for, I think for most of us and for most of the world, we want a king. We must have a king, a governing authority who protects us, who defends us, who comes to destroy death and comes to destroy divorce and dementia, the type of king who can do all these things for us. And the reality is, is for all of humanity, we have always sought to crown someone as king. American people, we're kind of schizophrenic about this, aren't we? We don't like the ideas of kings, at least over us. Except every four years when we elect a president, we seem to believe that despite the fact that we have a democratic republican system, that the king will solve, or the president will solve all of our problems, despite the fact that their power is limited. And in America, we're schizophrenic because as we, you know, we, we hate tyrants and kings, right? What's the flag of Virginia say? Sick, semper, tyrannus. 
death to tyrants always, and has a nice patriotic woman with her foot on the king of England. And yet for many of us, we are obsessed with the kings of England. More than any other country in the world, we are the ones who would watch the coronation or the wedding of kings and queens of England. You see, we know we need to be led. We know we need a king. Why are we this way, though? It's because it is put into our DNA that we were designed by a king, and we were designed to be in relationship with that king, to have him rule over our life, to protect us, to defend us, to direct how our life ought to go. And yet, the story of the Bible is this, is that we have separated ourselves from the only good king. You see, there was a time in the garden when policemen didn't get killed, when crazed gunmen and suicide bombers didn't run into malls, when evil dictators didn't gas and poison their own people. We instead had a king who was flawless, who was good, who was kind. And there is something inherent in our DNA and our image-bearing that remembers that king, that reflects on that king, but we rebelled. That's the story of the Bible. We had a good king, but we rebelled. We rejected the king. We ran away from him in much the same way that we had that theme this morning of running away from the father. We had a good father, and yet we ran from him. We separate ourselves from him. And the Bible tells us that even in the midst of our great separation between us and God, the beautiful truth is this, is all the way going back to Genesis 3, at the very moment when God and man are being separated, when the king and his people, when his people are rejecting the king, the king speaks a curse, but within the curse over his people, he promises, I will return. And he promises to stamp out, to crush the head of the serpent. The king will come back and destroy the tyranny of the evil king who has invaded his world. That's the story from the very beginning. And we see that this is part of the story of redemptive history. The book of Judges, when the people of Israel have come out of Egypt, they have wandered through the desert for 40 years, they come into the promised land, everything appears to be hunky-dory, and then Joshua dies. And what happens? Judges starts. And the whole point of the book of Judges is this. We need a king. And what we find is the king comes. That a kingship as great as it was, what it points to is this, is that we need a more perfect king. And in fact, we see even in our text today that what are the people longing for and looking for? They're looking for the better David. It says it there, to, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. That they're looking for the fullest fruition of the kingdom of David to come to bear. That, that, at that one point, that one a symbiotic moment in Israelite history where things went the way they were supposed to was under David's rule and when his family ruled was Solomon. And yet we rejected the kings. In Isaiah, we see these promises over and over again in the prophets and particularly in Isaiah that the king will come, that the government will be upon his shoulders, that it will be, he will come and establish justice and righteousness. Now, This has been the longing of human hearts. This has been the longing of the people of Israel. And so it's no wonder within that larger biblical context that when one who comes, who the people believe are going to be their king and their Messiah, that they stop and they throw their clothes on the ground and they shout and they say, Hosanna in the highest. But, but, this group does not actually rightly understand who Jesus is. 
There is how you receive the king will have much to do with what you believe about who the king is and what the king should be like. They are very clearly looking for a king and a messiah. But they have different ideas about who this king and this messiah should be and what he should do than who the, what the king thinks he should be and do. There are a number of groups that are present in this text that are surrounded here in Mark 11. And we see the parallel text in John 12 and Luke 19 and Matthew 21. And there are various groups. There's this, the general crowd. And this is the, the crowd that is excited and they come out to, to praise Jesus. Most likely this crowd was not so much that while well, they saw that Jesus was something powerful and somebody who would come and save them, they did so primarily in response to his miracle works. This is probably the same group that had been there and stood at Lazarus' grave and seen Jesus raise a dead man to life. And so that if you see a dead man being raised to life by somebody, you're going to follow that man. And that's who they're following. The Pharisees, they don't even want Jesus to be there. They're the legalistic leader, religious leaders of the day. They wanted to retain their power in the religious life in Palestine. And they are looking, in fact, for a moment in which for Jesus to trip up. In fact, they're excited that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem because this now gives them the opportunity to take out this king, this supposed king. Then there's the zealots. The zealots, they were possibly part of this group, but they were definitely in Jerusalem at various places, and we see them in their, their, their presence in, in, in the Gospels. The zealots were this kind of fringe group. What they wanted was they wanted Jesus to come in to overthrow Rome and to establish a physical, earthly, Israelite kingdom that would take over the world. That's what they wanted. And then we have the disciples of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus, within them, there could have been any number of these other three groups. There was those who would then later on align themselves with the Pharisees. There was guys who simply loved the fact that Jesus would do great miracles. And there was those who, most often, they would love for Jesus to be establishing an earthly kingdom. But most of what we see here in the disciples is that they have is visions of grandeur. They wanted Jesus, and they, they thought Jesus was great because they thought Jesus would establish this wonderful kingdom where they would get to be dukes and princes and people of power in Jesus' kingdom. So the question for us this morning, if we are to rightly worship God, we have to know what kind of Jesus we are worshiping. See, we all enter, we all have different ways of coming to the text. We, even, we have presuppositions, ways that we want Jesus to be. What kind of Jesus are you looking for? If you were honest with yourself and evaluated the type of Savior, the Messiah, and the King that you're looking for, what kind of Jesus is that? You see, some of us are looking for the Prozac Jesus. The Jesus who just makes me feel okay, who comforts me, who calms my emotions, who, who helps me be a little more numb to life's difficulties. Some of us like the Walmart or the Target Jesus. The Jesus who we can go to and who just gets us whatever we want. It's a one-stop shop for what life's, life's issues and life's needs. There's district attorney Jesus. The Jesus you can go to and you can say, Jesus, go get those people I don't like. They're not behaving in the way that I think they ought to behave. There's travel agent Jesus, the Jesus who takes you to a life that is easy and comfortable, and he just does everything for you. What kind of Jesus are you looking for? There are moments for all of us where we would rather have a Messiah of our own making, a Messiah who would seek the purposes of our kingdom instead of his kingdom. But we find ourselves in one of the most familiar moments in text in the Bible. It's in all four of the Gospels we see this account of Jesus entering Jerusalem. It's interesting, most likely in your Bible, there are these headings. And we see how we read into the text what may not be there, even from those headings. Even great translators of the Bible, 
Most often in your, the heading, of, and those, those are not part of the original scriptures, those headings. Most likely, the heading in your Bible, whether it be in Mark 11 or John 12, is this, the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. This, this entry of victory. Do you think Jesus thought it was so victorious? I don't think so. You see, Jesus stops to weep on his way into Jerusalem. And Jesus appears to be quite aware of what lies ahead of him for the rest of that week. This was not a king who was entering in triumph. It was quite a different king. And if we were to understand this king, if we were to rightly worship this king, we look at it and we go, isn't that wonderful? They worship the king. They threw their clothes down in, in, in honor. They put branches down before him. Yes, they treated him like the king. But it's important that you rightly worship him as the king that he is, not the king that we wish him to be. And so if we're going to rightly worship him, rightly praise him, to rightly sing Hosanna in the highest and understand what we mean and be truly excited and truly worshipful about that, then we have to understand this king as he would have himself be understood. So we're going to look at three things that I think are revealed that Jesus is explicitly communicating to us here in this text that would help shape and refine and sanctify our worship of the king. And the first is this, and that is, is Jesus is showing the, the authority of the king. He is showing the authority of the king. When, G, when the king comes, he comes to lay claim on all things and all people that belong to him. You know, it's interesting, in Jesus, in one of the other places in the Gospels, he tells the parable of a vineyard owner. And he tells the story of how this vineyard owner bought this land, and he took this land that was just kind of this barren land in which you're producing nothing good, and he takes it and he cultivates the land and he builds this beautiful vineyard. And then he, he brings in those who will cultivate and continue to care for the vineyard and help produce the fruit and take care of that fruit and sell it for a profit. And he brings those renters in and he leaves. And then what happens? When he sends his other servants to come and bring to get the proceeds from that vineyard, what do they do? They tell the king, they tell the vineyard owner, go ahead and get lost. Get lost. That's the story of the worlds, right? Going back to the garden, Adam and Eve, the king came. It was, the earth was formless and void. He spoke into it. He built a beautiful garden. He put his servants in it. And then what do they eventually say? They say, get lost. Get lost. And that is what we have done. The world is God's. He made it. It is fruitful and it is beautiful, but the occupants ne almost never acknowledge the owner of this land. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, it says in the Psalms. The king owns everything. He is in charge of everything. And yet so often we act as if it is ours. Now we see this reality beautifully in this text about how the king comes and claims to have authority over all things and all people. He comes and he says this, Jesus is about to ride in the city, but where are they going to get a beast for him to ride on. Where do they go? He says, I want you to go into that village over there, and I want you to walk up and, and just untie the donkey, untie the colt, and bring it to me. And if they say, hey, what are you doing? What does Jesus tell them to say? The Lord has need of it. Or it's a little bit, sometimes the King James just put it, puts it in a way that is nice to remember. The Lord hath need of it. The authority of Jesus, that he can sovereignly come in and requisition anything in this world because it's his. Jesus comes as the king who is authoritative over all things. If I did this, if I come into your house this afternoon and I walk up right up to the, uh, the landing 
in your house, and I go up, and there's, there's your car keys, and I grab the keys to your SUV, and I walk out, and I, I put the keys in the car, and you come running out, and you go, what are you doing? And I say, your pastor hath need of it. <laughs> you would say, yeah, I'm going to call the cops. Why? Because I don't have the authority. But Jesus can get away with it because he is the king. We can't get away with that. You and I can't get away with that. But the king, he is the rightful owner. Everything is his. And this speaks to your life. Your education is not yours. It's his. Your life is not yours. It's his. Your children are not yours. They are his. This is what he does. At the very beginning, when he calls people to follow him, to be his disciples, he goes to some Galilean fishermen, and he says, why don't you go ahead and drop your vocation, drop your family, and follow me? Because all those things are mine, and I want you to put them aside and follow me. Follow me. It will cost you your life. It will cost you your life to follow this king. But he owns your life. It's his. So here's the question. When Jesus comes, metaphorically comes into your life and says, I need it. I need that. I have need of it for my mission, for my work in this world. What will you say? Will you say, hey, put that back. No touchy, God. Or will you say, okay, may your will be done. You cannot and you will not rightly worship this king until you have yielded and submitted your life to him, to his rightful ownership, his rightful authority, and his sovereign claim over your life, that there is not one aspect of your life that he cannot touch, that he cannot take, that he cannot use for his purposes in this world. Have you yielded to this authority? By the way, does this act of submission happen just once? Has this happened when you're at a, a conference and you walk up and you say, I give my life to you, and you sing the song, I surrender all? Has it just happened once? No, this is a daily activity to get up and say, oh my goodness, I'm on the throne again. I got to get off. I am not the king. You are the king. and I'm going to have to get off the throne yet again. Daily saying, you are the king. I am off the throne And when we say to the king, my home is yours, my life is yours, my retirement is yours. Some of you have saved and saved and saved and saved, and now you've hit that wonderful age of 62 or 64 or 67 or whatever it may be, and you're saying, this is mine. And God shows up and he goes, knock, knock. You know that retirement? I want it. I want the next 30 years of your life. Why don't you go on the mission field and not raise support? You've got the nest egg. Why don't you use it for kingdom work? Your retirement is his. What do you say at that point? You fight him or you submit to him? What happens when the king comes and he says, your children are mine? I heard a story this week from a pastor who had two daughters. One was in college and one was in high school. And his two daughters had this great idea. They wanted to serve Jesus. They wanted to serve Jesus for their summer, and so they decided to go to Kenya and work in a slum in Nairobi. And he asked how much they had to raise, and it was some unbelievably ridiculous sum. And so he thought, okay, I don't have to fight this because there's no way they're going to raise the money to be able to go. But lo and behold, they did. And he goes, "Uh uh-oh. But right before... A couple of days, weeks before they were supposed to go, there was one of those often, as happens, one of those uprisings 
in Africa. And it was during, right during that time when the Al-Qaeda attacked the embassy and they attacked a nightclub in Mombasa and they were firing missiles at Al-Al jets. And so the, the missions organization came to them and said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and call it off because we, we, we don't know that this is a safe place. Well, a few days later, they came back and they said, you know what, we've changed our mind. We think we can get these students in and out of the country with relative safety. And so we're going to go if your parents say yes. And so the girls came to dad and they said, dad, what say you? He said, at that moment, I had to say, the Lord hath need of it. You see, for many of you, you're, you're as parents, like your kid goes to high school or they get into college and they say, I want to go spend my summer at Summer Beach Project, or I want to go overseas and do missions work, I want to go to Mexico, or I want to go to a dangerous place, or I want to come out of college, I want to go on staff with some sort of ministry, or I want to go into some sort of uh, profession in which I'm going to work in the inner city and I'm not going to make a whole lot of money, but I'm going to do it because it's kingdom work. And at some point, you're going to have to say, the Lord hath need of it. Too many parents say, that child is mine. God, don't touch them. Don't touch them. Here's the reality is you must untie your children because they are not yours. They are God's. So the right worship, the life that truly speaks, the life that truly proclaims to the world to the, about this king, Hosanna in the highest is the life that says, this king, this king, he's the ruler of my life. He is the authority and I will submit to him. The second thing we learn about this king and who he is and what he comes to do that helps sanctify our worship and make it right is we must see the restoration of the king. The restoration of the king. We go back to the history of the Bible. When we rejected the true king, everything broke. Everything broke. When we became separated from the king, it tells us, the Bible tells us that immediately everything goes haywire, Right? Immediately after Adam and Eve get out of the garden, they have a couple sons, and what do they do? One kills the other brother. And men run after multiple sexual partners, and women decide that they are not gonna, they're gonna conspire against their husbands. And this, everything, everything in life goes to hell. It all goes to pot. Literally. Separation from the king. It is a slow descent into hell. That's what the earth is. And time after time, we see the destruction of life outside of living in the kingdom of this wonderful king. Now you think, if you had a king who had a people who rejected against him, who rebelled against him, who rebelled against everything that he had said that they are how they ought to live, who had des- desecrated his world and desecrated his image bearers, that when that king came, what would he become to do? He'd be coming to lay down some wood, wouldn't he? To lay down some judgments. But what happens when this king comes? When this king comes, he comes to restore all things to himself. We see this in a couple places. First, we see this in the, maybe the oddest of ways. But we see it in the fact that Jesus rides a donkey. A donkey. He rides a donkey. You would expect a king to ride in on a great war horse. But remember that Jesus is not coming to bring war, but to bring peace. Kings in times of peace and as signs of peace would ride donkeys and mules as a sign of humility. They come into the city, not with war, but with peace. Not only does Jesus ride a donkey, but he also rides a donkey that has never been ridden before. Now listen, I grew up as a beach kid in Florida. If I ever saw a donkey, it was at one of those stupid fairs where they just kind of goes in a circle. And you could like, if I were to ride it today, I could like put my feet on it and like ride along with it. But if you were to actually try to get on a donkey, a colt that has never been ridden before, what would probably happen to you? 
you would probably get kicked off. Now, why? Because creation, creation rejects our authority. Because everything in creation has gone haywire. And yet Jesus comes, Jesus comes and gets put on a donkey, on a colt that has never been ridden before. And what do we see? We see no rejection by the donkey. Jesus sits on the animal, there is no reaction. The animal sips, submits, and there is no resistance. George Whitfield, one of the great American preachers, said this, you know, you know why dogs bark and why wild animals growl when humans come near. It's because they know that we have a quarrel with their maker. And yet when the maker comes, there is no quarrel. You see, the Bible says that when man fell, we took all of creation with us. And all creation fell. And it says in Romans that all creation is groaning, longing for the redemption of this world. And the king comes bringing restoration to make things right. And so the, in fact, the Bible says that when the king comes, and when the king comes in fullness, we see this in Revelation, when the king comes, the lion and the lamb will lie down together. There will be no more enmity. The child will be able to put their hand in the adder's den or the den of the serpent's. Jesus doesn't break the horse. What does he do? He heals the horse. He removes fear from this horse. Tim Keller puts it this way. The animal was already, broke, already was broken as a part of a broken creation, but his master comes to immediately heal him. You can call Jesus the donkey whisperer. His voice, his whip, whisper, his presence, his authority restores creation. And the king comes to restore and make all things new. We sing it at Christmas time, right? As far as the curse is found, the king comes to bring restoration, to make all things new. You see, the Pharisees want Jesus to make people stop worshiping him. And one of the other accounts, here it is, who are singing Hosanna to the king. And what does Jesus say in response? Listen, if they don't worship me, what's going to happen? The rocks, they'll start piping up. They'll start worshiping me. As the king. And this is what creation has longed for. We see this in Isaiah 55 and in uh, Psalm 97. But what happens? We see the rocks and the mountains and the trees clap, begin to worship the king, that all creation worships this king. Why? Because when he comes, there is restoration. And so right worship, right worship occurs when we see, when we see the great restoration that this king is bringing. When we see how wondrous his act of redemption is, it is not simply, God has not simply come to give us hell insurance. He's come to redeem the whole world. And he is worthy of praise for it. He is not limited to simply healing some small parts of this world, but he is healing all the places that are broken as far as the curse is found. So right worship the life that truly worships the Lord not only submits to his authority and praises the restorative work of this king, but what cannot be left is that right worship comes from seeing, lastly, the sacrifice that this king brings with him. The sacrifice that this king brings in order to restore us to himself. We're going to look at this in light of three T's. Topography, temple, and timing, the sacrifice of the king. The topography, topography is, is the scene that we see here. It's kind of not a right use of the word, but I wanted three T's. I want you to see the geography of what's going on in this picture. Where does Jesus, where does the account start? Where is Jesus and his disciples? On what mount? 
the Mount of Olives. And what we see here is this picture. This is clearly the picture of the coronation of a king. The picture is that he is riding in, and the crowds are celebrating his conquests, and they're garlanding him with praise. He has ribbons and medals. This is kind of taking on this, this imagery of a great warrior king who's coming back to his city in peace and triumph. This is what the Israelites and what the disciples wanted. They wanted the king to come on the war horse and knock some heads. They wanted Jesus to come in and take care of all evil as the victorious warrior. But we must be careful what we wish for. We must be careful what we wish for. Where is Jesus at the beginning of his descent? It's at the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is significant in Old Testament prophecy. And so you're going to bear with me in this last point because I'm going to point to a couple um, rather uh, passages that we may not be as familiar with. And the first is Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and 5. When it speaks about the Mount of Olives there and what happens there. On that day, it says, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, this is God speaking, that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord God will come, and all the holy ones with him. What is this a scene of? It may be difficult to follow, but I'll articulate it very straight for you. This is a scene of judgment. When the world splits open, that's judgment. That ain't good. It's never good when the earth splits open in the Bible. People end up falling into the center of the earth. It's not a good thing. This is a judgment text. This is a scene of judgment, that God is carrying out judgment from the Mount of Olives. He has left Jerusalem, and he is now speaking his judgment down upon Israel. What ought to happen when the Lord comes down from Mount Olives and enters Jerusalem is judgment. That's what ought to happen. That's not what happens. Jesus doesn't come in judgment. Instead, he comes with peace and salvation. And we even see that predicted in the, in the Minor Prophets. Zechariah 9, chapter, verse 9, says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to do what? Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, while it predicts that there's going to be judgment in the Old Testament, it also predicts that there's going to be salvation that is to come. There is a peace in the presence of this king because he brings not war, at least on this coming. Instead, he brings salvation instead of wrath and judgment. There's a great hymn, a great hymn of the church. It's entitled, Lead On, O King Eternal. And one of the verses goes like this. For not with swords loud crashing or rolling of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. He comes on a little horse, humble. This is a whole different kind of king. The kind of king who, when people reject him and run away from him and rebel against him, doesn't come first in wrath, but comes first in peace and with salvation. Now, from where, where does the count, that's where the count starts. Where does it end? How does he achieve this? If he's supposed to bring wrath, and yet he also supposed to bring salvation, how in the world does he achieve both of those things? We go to the next T, and that's the temple. Where he starts at the Mount of Olives, where does Jesus end in this event? The temple. In the temple. Jesus goes down to the temple. He comes into the city of Jerusalem. He immediately goes down there. In Ezekiel 11.23, this is an imagery that Jesus, again, is picking up on, in which what happens in Ezekiel 11.23 is this prophecy that because of Israel's sin, because of the rejection of Yahweh, the glory of the Lord, which has been on the temple, will be removed from the temple. And where will it go? 
Well, lo and behold, it'll go to the Mount of Olives. And so what do we see happening? What we see happening here is that the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord is reversing the judgment that he has proclaimed upon Israel. Instead of removing himself, now he is going for the Mount of Olives. He is now going into the temple. The glory of the Lord is being restored. It's being restored. He is, rever- he is reversing the act of judgment in Ezekiel 11. But again, that leaves the issue, how in the world, how in the world can he both say he's going to come in wrath and judgment and also in salvation? That brings us to the third T, and that's the timing. The timing of Jesus' arrival has norm- enormous implications here. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and what day does he enter? On a Sunday, the Sunday before, and this is what has going on, at the, this is the beginning of Passover week, in which people from all over the known world, Jews from coming from all places, and what are they bringing with them? What are they going to sacrifice and slaughter during the week of Passover? Lambs. And this would have been a significant day in which all these people, thousands, in fact, possibly hundreds of thousands of people are entering into Jerusalem, and they're bringing with them and herding with them what? Sheep for the slaughter. You see, what is mingled here as Jesus comes down off the Mount of Olives and goes down into the temple and into Jerusalem is while we hear the hosannas in the highest, we also hear the bleeding of sheep who will go down to the sacrifice. That is not insignificant. Why? Because people, when people take their sheep to the, to the Passover, what is it signifying? They're slaughtering those sheep to cover their sins so they may avoid the wrath of God and receive the salvation of God instead. And what is going on here and what Jesus is communicating is I am the king who also came to be the lamb who is going to be slaughtered for your sins. That I will go down to the temple and I will have myself slaughtered on your behalf. You see, all other kings say, you lay your life down for me. This king comes and he lays down his life for us. Sin is when we take the rightful place of the king. Salvation comes when the king takes our rightful place. That when we deserve wrath, he takes that spot so that we can receive salvation only. This is the truth of what is going on here. Imagine, imagine if you, there was a number of years ago, Ray Cortez tells a story about um, uh, Michelle Obama going and seeing the queen. You might remember this. And she goes to the queen and she touches the queen. And apparently that's a no-no. Us Americans and our uncouthness, we don't know that we're not allowed to touch the queen. So she goes and she touches the queen, and there's this big hubbub in the press. No touching the queen. She is set apart. She is holy. But imagine this. So imagine that imagery of, of that kind of royalty being set apart, that you can't even, she's so holy and so awesome that you can't even touch her, that even another person, another governmental authority can't come and touch her. But imagine this. Imagine the Queen Elizabeth with a cat of nine tails, beat up against her back and then taking an execution device and dragging it through the streets of London. Imagine the queen with nails in her palms. Nothing more is unthinkable, but that is what our king did. The king that we shouldn't be allowed to touch in his holiness, and yet he enters in to be the lamb who would slaughter it on our behalf. Do you see what it costs the king to restore all creation and, yes, to restore you to himself? You see the sacrifice that he pays in order to pour himself out to make us right with God. What does all this point to? How can this king come to a rebellious, sinful, pathetic group of people like you and me and instead of bringing wrath, bring salvation? It's because he's covered us. It's because the lamb was covered with our sin and he took our wrath. 
The King provides salvation through sacrifice. We come to our close this morning. And it's interesting. We look at this, and because of that, that, that phraseology about this being the triumphal entry, that we think this is a really large crowd that has welcomed Jesus. And yet Jesus, that was outside the city, but actually when he enters the city, it is like a thud hits the text. Jesus comes in, Hosanna the highest. All right, that was nice. We're going to go home now. And how does it end? Jesus shows up at the temple. Here it is. The imagery of Ezekiel 11. Here it is. The glory of the Lord has returned to the kingdom, has returned to the temple. And what happens? Not a word is said. Utter apathy. Utter apathy. The glory of God has come down. The text is setting us up for the rest of the week. It's asking a question of us. Where the tension comes in, comes to its head, is when Christ is crucified on the cross. You see, indifference is really hate concealed, and they are utterly indifferent to Jesus. Eventually, that hatred will come out. You see, Jesus was the glory of God coming down to dwell with the people, and yet they reject him and send the glory of God back outside the city to another mountain, not the Mount of Olives this time, but the mount called Golgotha, and they will crucify him later on this week. The great tension that is in this passage is being set up, and it's asking a question. How will you respond to the coming of the king? With apathy? With rejection once again? Or, or will you submit and will you worship? This is the question of Good Friday, or of, of Palm Sunday. There's good news and there's bad news in the coming of the king. The good news is this. This first coming, it's awesome. If you're in opposition to the king, like all of us are born into, we're born into a kingdom that is opposed to the king. And yet when he comes, he comes bringing peace and he comes to bid us, not opposition, to bid us peace with us so that he restores us to himself. The Bible says that we are in a season of amnesty. And in fact, that is part of our, our role as the mission of the church to go and proclaim to the world, the king has come and he offers peace. That's the good news. There's also a warning here, isn't there? Because what we see in the second time Jesus comes back is in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And it says that time that he will not ride on a donkey. He will ride on a war horse. And he will come in judgment. You see, this question is not just any old question. How will you receive the king? Will you worship him with all that you are? Or will you reject him and send him back outside the city? That's the question of Palm Sunday. As we enter into this week, we ought to confess our sins and look to the one who was willingly submitted on our behalf, who took the sacrifice, who took the wrath of God, and let us join, instead of rejecting the king as they did, and as much of the world has rejected the king, instead join all of creation in worshiping the king with all that we are, with all that we have. Have you done that? I hope you have. Let's pray. <coughs> oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are a people. I hope we're a people who this morning are the people who have accepted the king's peace terms, who have come outside the city and has seen the king in all of his authority, in all of his glory, in all of his redemptive work, in all of his sacrifice, and we have said, that king, that is the king we will follow. 
and we have bowed our knee to King Jesus. We have said that he is my salvation. He is my restoration. He is my peace. He is my authority. He is my Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. <coughs> we thank you that when you've come, that you, you did not come bringing a sword on your first visit, on your first advent, but you came bearing a cross so that we, we might come to know you once again. So that we, this people, this, us who are rebels, as we sang about, running from you might be brought into the, your kingdom. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that as we enter into this week, that it would be a week of confession and repentance. That as we look towards Good Friday, and we look towards the incredible act, the great sacrifice of the cross, that we would day in and day out wake up in morning and evening, in prayer, come and lay our confessions before you and say, we have rebelled against you, King. We plead the sacrifice of Jesus. We need you to come and heal us, Emmanuel. Heal our hearts, God. Heal our world. So that your salvation, Lord, is known as far as the curse is found, both in us and around the world. We pray all these things in the name of the perfect King, Jesus. Amen.